Welcome to another episode of Operation Sequel. Today we'll be talking about The Legend of Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. A little bit of quick info before we get down and dirty with the game. It released in January 1987 in Japan. PAL region got it before North America in September of 1988, and then North America had to wait till December the same year. This one hasn't been released too often. It's only been re-released on the GameCube and the Game Boy Advance. Now I will admit, I, I thought that the same team behind the first Legend of Zelda just continued on and worked on this one. I didn't know it had different developers. So getting right into it, the directors this time was a Tadashi Sugiyama who worked on the F-Zero franchise and the Ice Climbers. He was accompanied as co-director by Yoichi Yamada. This was of course produced by Mr. Nintendo himself, Shigeru Miyamoto. It was designed by a Kazunobu Shimizu, written by Takashi Tezuka. And the music was composed by Akito Nakasuka, who worked on Excite Bike and as well on Ice Climbers. Now, talking about Zelda 2, this does have a bit of a bad reputation. Uh, along with Final Fantasy 2, I, I don't necessarily see why. I mean, I believe the Famicom version of Final Fantasy 2 was a little worse than the one I played on the Origins Collection. This hasn't been remastered, it hasn't been changed at all. I, I played it on the Virtual Console on the Wii U. And again, I, I did have a bit of a problem with the controls, but not near as bad as the original Legends of Zelda. I'm starting to think I just don't like that D-pad. It seems a little too big. But maybe it's just because, again, I'm used to the PlayStation. Well, I'm glad I didn't have to play it on the Xbox D-pad, I guess, so count your blessings, right? Now, this has quite a bit more backstory to flesh it out, and like I'm intending to do, I'm going to read the... Well, it's not really a blurb this time from the manual, it's, it's a bit of a story, so grab a bag of chips and sit down. Hyrule was on the road to ruin. The power that the vile heart of Ganon had left behind was causing chaos and disorder in Hyrule. What's more, even after the fall of Ganon, some of his underlings remained, waiting for Ganon's return. The key to Ganon's return was the blood of Link, the valiant lad who overthrew the King of Evil. Ganon would be revived by sacrificing Link and sprinkling his blood on the ashes of Ganon. Meanwhile, Link remained in the little kingdom of Hyrule and lent his hand to its restoration, but circumstances did not look very good. One day, a strange mark, exactly like the crest of the kingdom, appeared on the back of Link's hand as he approached his 16th birthday. This worried Link. The worried Link went to Impa. Princess Zelda's nursemaid who was shocked and frightened when she saw the birthmark. When she regained her composure, she took Link to the North Castle. There was a door in the North Castle called the Door That Does Not Open. Very creative there. Only the descendants of the Impa family who served the king knew how to open the door. Impa took Link's left hand and pressed the back of it against the door. There was the sound of a lock falling open. The door slowly creaked open and there on the altar in the middle of the room lay a beautiful woman. Here lies Princess Zelda, Impa began to speak calmly. Link, the time has come when I must tell you the legend of Zelda handed down in Hyrule. It is said that a long time ago when Hyrule was one country, a great ruler maintained the peace in Hyrule using the Triforce. However, the king too was a child of man and he died. Then the prince of the kingdom should have become king and inherited everything, but he could inherit the Triforce only in part. The prince searched everywhere for the missing parts, but could not find them. Then, a magician close to the king brought him some unexpected news. Before he died, the king had said something about the Triforce to the only younger sister of the prince, Princess Zelda. 
The prince immediately questioned the princess, but she wouldn't tell him anything. After the prince, the magician threatened to put the princess in eternal sleep if she did not talk, but even still, she said nothing. In his anger, the magician tried to cast a magic spell on the princess. The surprised prince tried to stop him, but the magician fought off the prince and went on chanting the spell. Then when the spell was finally cast, Princess Zelda fell on that spot and entered a sleep from which she might never awake. At the same time, the magician also fell down and breathed his last. In his grief, the prince placed the princess in this room. So that this tragedy would never be forgotten, he ordered that every female child born in the royal household shall be given the name Zelda. From the stand next to the altar where Princess Zelda lay in a deep sleep, Impa took six crystals and a scroll with the same crest and handed them to Link. For generations, my family has been handed down these things which have been set aside for a time when a great king will come. They are written in an ancient script that no one can read now, but you who have the crest may be able to read it. It is said that the key to uniting the Triforce is hidden there. Now it is time for you to read it. Link glanced at the scroll half in doubt. But what do you know? Although he had never seen the letters before, he found that he could read them as if they were talking to him. This was written on the scroll. You who control the Triforce of Future, I shall hand down to you the secrets of the Triforce. There are three kinds of Triforce, power, wisdom, and courage. When these three are brought together, the Triforce will show its maximum power. Of the three, I have left power and wisdom in the kingdom, but the Triforce of Courage I have hidden for a reason. Not everybody can use the Triforce, it requires a strong character with no evil thoughts, but an inborn special quality is also necessary. Unfortunately, I have not found such a person during my lifetime. Therefore, I have decided to cast a spell on all of Hyrule. Crest will appear on a young man with that character who has been brought up correctly, has gained many kinds of experiences and reached a certain age. But what will happen if someone else uses the Triforce before them? If it is misused, it will produce many evils. The Triforce of Courage is hidden in the Great Palace in the Valley of Death on the largest island in Hyrule. However, to enter you must first fight the Guardians and undo the Binding Force. When you have defeated the Guardians, which I have made to prevent enemies from invading the six palaces in Hyrule, set a crystal in the forehead of the statue you find. When you have set crystals in all the statues in the six palaces, the Binding Force placed on the Valley of Death will be removed. You will be able to enter the Great Palace. There you must fight the last Guardian, and you can obtain the Triforce only by defeating that Guardian. There is nothing to fear, you are the one to get the Triforce. You are the beacon of hope for Hyrule. Impa implored Link, who raised his head slowly after reading the scroll. The magic spell cast upon Princess Zelda will sure to be broken if the Triforce is used. Please, Link, unite the Triforce and save the princess. Bring back peace to Hyrule. Link nodded silently in approval and left the room after taking a long glance to the altar. Then, with the magical sword in his left hand and a magical shield in his right, he set off alone on his long travels. At that time, Ganon's underlings were calling up new allies from the underworld, beginning to work devilishly towards the revival of Ganon. Now, as with a lot of the later NES games, most of that's in the manual. There is, there is very little of that actually spoken in the game. Most of the dialogue from NPCs is actually meant to either help you guide where, where to go or incidental dialogue, nothing really important. Now, depending on what type of kid you were when you first played this, or maybe played it older, I don't know, if you were the type of person to read the manual first and then play the game, the beginning scene of seeing Zelda in the background is actually kind of a very nice touch. Not only does it give you a cool area to just goof around in and check out all the controls and stuff like that, it sets up the story nicely with what was done in the manual. Now there are a few things that are quite different in this one as opposed to the last one or in a couple other ones actually. First off, it's a side-scroller. 
uh, with an overmap kind of reminiscent of Dragon Quest. The overworld is something you won't really get lost in. There are paths leading to a lot of the places you have to go, and even if not, the game kind of shunts you in a certain direction. Sure, there are many places where you could go left or you could go right, but you won't find much progress to be done in one area if you're supposed to go in the other. There are now random battles on the overworld instead of actually fighting the enemies themselves, and what happens is these little sprites will pop up and they will chase after you. If they catch you, then you go into a side-scrolling random battle sequence. They're not a huge deal. If you don't want to fight them, say it's something incredibly weak and you don't want to hassle with it, you can just run towards the side of the screen. You don't have to defeat every enemy to get back to the overworld, which I think is a very nice touch because that would get incredibly tedious if you were trapped in that one area until you defeated all the enemies. Speaking of battles, I think one of the big problems with this game is your sword is incredibly short. I mean, your sword is about as lengthy as if you've ever played Wizards and Warriors. That little dinky sword that Kuros just kind of waves about. It's about that long. I mean, you have to get incredibly close to hit the enemies. And a lot of times they have swords that are as longer, if not longer than you. So against a lot of enemies, you start at a disadvantage. Link looks much better this time, I think. The, the sprite is much more well-defined. He doesn't quite look as derpy as he did in the first one, which, I mean, that's fine. It was released way earlier in the system's life. But I do like the way he looks now. I, I like that he looks a little bit older, that, that tunic is more well-defined, and his face is, well, not the face of Link. When I started playing this, there were a few things I had forgotten because I haven't played this since I was a kid. I, I did run around leveling up like I tend to do in most RPGs. Which, on a side note, I'm starting to not agree with the people who count Zelda as an RPG. It doesn't seem to fit. It, it's not really an action RPG. There, There's no money system. No rupees, by the way. It's more an action-adventure game with some slight RPG mechanics. It's not what I would call an RPG. I did laugh when I ran into the, uh, the bits and the bots. They're these reminiscent sort of of Dragon Quest slimes. I thought it was kind of funny that the first enemy you fight in this, uh, this Zelda game was a slime. The enemies, well, I, I guess I will mention the enemies as they tend to spring up. It's one of the ones that, that harried me in the beginning of the game was the bats. It, it's always the bats or the eagles or the medusa heads. The, the flying enemies are awful. But in this, before you get the upgradable moves like these airstrike or the downward strike, they are incredibly frustrating to deal with because you have to imagine Castlevania without a long whip, but that same kind of jumping arc. You have a little bit of control over where you go in the air, but it's a very set jump. And trying to hit a flying enemy that's flying in a U pattern at exactly the right time to hit it, it does get a bit frustrating. It's nothing game-breaking, it's just, you know, ugh, the dumb bats. A couple of things that did bug me was the uh, the text from the townsfolk is maddeningly slow. Like, it is letter at a time slow. And if you press the button, it doesn't speed it up, it just ends it. Now that, that in and of itself is a good thing, because if you have played it before, you don't have to wait for it. As soon as you click on the person, it counts as activated. You don't necessarily have to wait for it to finish. So that's kind of nice if you've played it before. But wanting to read what each villager says, oh my gosh, that, that was so frustrating. But on the same token, you do enjoy talking to them because they're not Castlevania II townspeople. They, they actually help. Some of what they say is a little vague, but in its context, you can almost always figure out what it is. Switching gears here and talking more about the, uh, the rest of the game itself, there is a nice touch where, depending on what terrain you're in, when you get into a random battle, different enemies will spawn. It's not just in this area, you will always have slimes. 
it's if you're in this area and you walk onto a forest panel, you will get different enemies than if you had been on a plains panel or a swamp panel or things like that. I like that. That's a very nice touch. There are some enemies that give no XP. They might give XP until you're level 2 or something like that. I can't say I noticed, I'm sorry. But I did find it frustrating to continually fight waves of enemies that did not give any XP at all. Even if it was just one, it would be better. And I don't know if, because they died in one hit, even at the weakest of levels, it was something that they did so you wouldn't sit there and farm for an hour or two and then hit max level. I don't know. Uh, speaking of leveling, the leveling system is a little weird. What you have is you have a, a threshold of, of experience points. So you will say you have 300 experience points. Once you hit that 300 experience point marker, you then have a choice to either cancel that level up or use that level up on that first layer of what you're supposed to unlock. So you can either upgrade your health, your magic, or your attack. So say your health upgrades at 300 experience points, but your attack strength upgrades at 500. You can cancel that level up at once you get 300 and then continue to work on to the 500 because every time you level something up, they get more and more expensive. Uh, that's a nice touch. It, it actually reminds me a lot of the Paper Mario leveling system, where every level you can pick one thing to level up. I like that. That was fun. Uh, some of the later levels, once you get to, like, let us say, six levels in your attack strength, the requirements become ridiculously high. Now, this wouldn't be a problem so much if every time you got a game over, and you will get game overs in this, your experience didn't reset when you hit continue. Uh, you get three lives. There are some one-ups to be found in the world, but you can only get them once per game. And you cannot earn extra lives any other way until you have maxed out a stat. And then if you max out a stat and have enough experience points to use that to level up, you will get a, an extra link instead of more stats. And that, that's an incredibly high ceiling. Most, uh, you will find enemies that offer quite a bit of experience, but you're not going to be able to, unless you are the hardest of hardcore grinders, you don't want to get to, you know, 3,000 experience points by killing slimes, which give you two experience points per kill. It's a bit ridiculous. Back to the good side of things. In dungeons, as long as you have not game overed, every enemy you've killed will remain dead until you get a game over. And that is that is very nice. I've forgotten about that and I'm much appreciative towards that. Some of the enemies are borderline unfair. And that could be said about the whole game almost. It, it's truly what you would call Nintendo hard. And I'm split down the middle on that. One is, oh come on, this is ridiculous. Two is, I like the idea of you having to have a separate strategy for every enemy you face. Like, the Iron Knuckles are not going to go down the same way as the Axe-throwing Lizard guys. I'm sorry, I don't remember their name. Or they're not going to go down the same way as the Tektites or things like that. Every enemy has a specific strategy that you should use. One of the ones that's borderline cheap and they don't hit very hard are those little skull balls that, you know, bounce around the room like a pinball. What I don't like about them is they reduce your magic points and magic points are a incredibly scarce resource in this now you can get some refills but the spells they give you cost an insane amount of mp to cast it's not something you'll be casting all the time i guess i could deal with the high magic point cost if they lasted for more than one screen say they were for a certain amount of time or if you cast shield until you get on an elevator it, it is activated that i i guess i could deal with but it wasn't exactly something that you could use to your advantage at all times. It was uh, it was something you had to save for even specific bosses. 
Like, there were some bosses that you needed the magic for. Like, the last, well, not the last boss, the second to the last boss. You needed to cast a spell that took up almost half of your entire bar, even if you were max level, just to damage him. So that means you had to get through the last dungeon with almost no magic, or, or very, very strict on your magic points. You know, not use it unless you saw a bottle drop that restored your MP. The music is, I think, way better than Legend of Zelda 1. That temple theme, it's something that I actually always associated with the first game, mainly because of Smash Brothers, you know, playing on Hyrule Castle. And I was wrong. It is from this game, and that, that song is absolutely fantastic. The town theme, I'm not a huge fan of, but it does its job. It's absolutely fine. There are not very many tracks to this game, and I may have to resort to using remix tracks or later revisions of a song under this because I don't think I have enough to even cover this podcast. So you, the, if you get worn out by the same music playing over and over again, it will wear on you after a while. <laughs> Funny little tidbit about the sound. Um, I noticed when on the game over screen where you see Ganon, who is still a pig here, the laugh seems to be exactly the same laugh that they used for Bald Bull in Punch-Out. And that, you know, that made me chuckle and reminds me that I really need to play through the Punch-Out series again. It's been a long time. On that same note as throwbacks, I noticed that the um, red monsters that throw flails at you, or maces, I don't remember what they were called, they are almost exactly the same AI in movement as the Hammer Brothers. And so it was kind of refreshing to have an enemy that I could easily take out because, well, who hasn't killed a bunch of Hammer Brothers in their life? On the same token as your enemies remaining dead when you die, uh, same goes for things like the keys. If you collect the key and then die, when you restart at the beginning of the dungeon, you still have that key so you can just continue on. Which again, I, I didn't remember and really have to applaud them for doing. That was very nice. Now, playing through this time, there were a few things I noticed, and these are more related to the gameplay than the game themselves. Uh, I struggled with remembering how to attack those iron knuckles, and I'm not going to lie, I may have Googled it, because them suckers were half a life bar every time, and it took me a long time to get the timing down to be able to, you know, do the jump slash. Yeah, that, that was a bit of a wall when I first ran into that. Another thing I, I did notice, the sword beam that comes out of the sword when you attack at full strength is absolutely useless. There are way too many enemies that are immune to it, and I don't like that because it's a reward for staying at high health. It's not that easy to remain at high health in this game, at least, and so it's a great reward for playing cautiously and moving slowly or being that skilled, yet the reward is absolutely useless. I don't like that very much. What I do like a lot is the bosses. The bosses in this are, are just head and shoulders above the bosses in the first game. They almost feel like Castlevania fights. They, uh, every single boss, I have, except with the one where, you know, the, the magician where you have to just sit in a corner and reflect the magic. That was pretty simple. But a lot of them, like uh, Hammerhead and Horsehead and the gentleman who's, you know, oh, I don't know, maybe he's a woman. I don't know, maybe he's a monster. I don't know. The guy who you have to knock off his helmets a couple times and then you, you can start hitting his head. Every single one of those was a lot of fun for me. I actually wish that there was more bosses in the game because every one of the bosses was a lot of fun to do. It was very, uh, very much a duel between two people instead of, you know, like the dragon in Zelda where you just stand at the other side of the room and fire away at them. I didn't like that very much, but these I do like. These are great bosses. It is not very nice to see that that damn beeping noise every time you get low health returns in here. I, I hope that doesn't return in every game. It might, though. And that worries me a little because that is incredibly frustrating. Uh, one thing I did notice was this game reminds me a lot of Fizanadu, if anybody's ever played that. And I haven't played a lot of the Dragon Slayer slash Xanadu series, but I have played Fizanadu, and it does remind me a lot of that. 
And that's not a bad thing, because I remember liking it. I, I, can't, I can't say I've played it any time recently. One thing that actually ties this to Final Fantasy is this game actually uses spike tiles, just like the original Final Fantasy. Now, the spike tiles don't lead directly to any very tough fights with powerful enemies. What it leads to is these staged action scenes, like running through a pass while a bunch of lizards huck fireballs at you, or running across a bridge while the Zelda version of Cheap Cheeps jump under the bridge at you. Or my favorite, Link not being able to touch a bubble and falling into a pit because he touched a bubble. Some of these are incredibly unfair and are borderline just bad. On a couple of them, I noticed that the trick for me to get through them was to just start running and don't stop, ever. Just, just keep running and jumping, kind of like in a, in a Mario level. It seemed like a lot of the bubbles spawned behind me when I did that. Now, bringing this absolutely mixed bag towards the close, I will say the end boss was great. I mean, anybody that doesn't know, which I don't think is too many people, uh, the end fight is Shadow Link. And I'm pretty sure if you know that Shadow Link is the end boss, you will also know that there is an incredibly cheap way to cheese it. I can't say I took the honorable route and decided to fight him as a duel. I did use the cheat method. I was really low on health and I didn't want to redo it. I was on my last life. So I will admit I took the coward's way out against Shadow Link. And that's pretty much all that really uh, jumped out at me for Zelda 2. I don't think this game deserves the reputation it gets. It's unfair, but if you use something like save states, it mitigated some of the, some of the unfairness. Uh, I wouldn't say go rush out, grab your Wii U, blow off all the dust that's sitting on that sucker, and you know boot up Adventure Link 2 or the Zelda 2, not the Adventure Link 2. But if you've got it, it might be re worth a visit at some point. So surprisingly, in this series of games that I thought I didn't like, there are two that are quite alright. I don't know if I'll ever go back to them, but they haven't aged terribly. They're, they're two classics that stand up for a reason. I wish Nintendo would remake this or make another Zelda game in this style, but I, I wish they would go back to the side-scrolling every once in a while because I have a feeling I will be a bit tired of the top-down by the end of this. Now a bit of uh, admin here. I want to play the PSP version of Final Fantasy 3 as the DS tends to hurt my hand a little bit more than the PSP does and I can hook that up to my TV and just use the PSP as a controller. However, like I've I think I've stated before, my PSP broke so I don't quite have the financials ready to buy a PSP, but I will soon. So there may be a slight delay getting to that Final Fantasy 3 episode. Well, more delay than it would take to just play Final Fantasy 3. So if it does take quite a long time, I will end up doing a Link to the Past before I do Final Fantasy 3, just to kind of, you know, keep this the momentum going here. But if it is a slight delay, then that, that would be why. All right, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.